Welcome, everyone, to part five of our Nolan Countdown miniseries. This week marks our halfway point into revisiting the full filmography of Christopher Nolan. And on this week's episode, we'll be trying to decipher all the tricks in the 2006 psychological thriller, The Prestige. Before we get to that, however, with me today, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey, and our Countdown series guest, Jay Habib. Guys, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing good, Scott. Not much to, new to add here. We're still in uh, in the coronavirus quarantine. Um, maybe a slight light at the end of the tunnel. I don't know, but it's still things are still not looking very good right now, uh, and they're certainly not looking good for Tenant, which um, you know still holding strong at the moment. But uh, again, who who knows how long that, that that's going to last as the weeks go on? And you know, when you listen to this, we've said it about every week. When you listen to this. Um, you know, the, the, the quarantine and all of that may be in the distant past, who knows, but, um, for now, Tenet is holding strong and hopefully we can release these episodes on schedule and you guys can listen to them on schedule, but you know, whenever you hear them, um, you know, that's good because that means Tenet is coming out eventually. I mean, the crazy thing this week, Scott, I don't know if you give it much attention, but all these rumors that Christopher Nolan is demanding his movie still be released in July, which, which some people have, I think more cynically taking it as him angling for his shot, his like one best shot at an Oscar because of all the delayed releases this year. I don't know. I mean, I don't know Christopher Nolan. I don't know what his thought process is like, but I, I found those rumors to be particularly interesting if he is. I mean, I kind of believe that he's demanding his movie be released. Otherwise, Warner Brothers would have pulled it already. But I'm a, I am have an eyebrow raised if that's because he thinks he can get an Oscar this year. Yeah, people are just looking for something to talk about right now, honestly. And I guess this is something to talk about, whether it has any merit to it or not. I tend to agree with you. I think that it doesn't have much merit and that Christopher Nolan is certainly going to have more chances at Academy Awards in his career. He came very close with his last movie, Dunkirk, um, to, to even taking home the big prize. So I, I don't think that I would put too much stock in, in those rumors. Yeah, especially since it feels like oftentimes the that we talk about the one for me, one for you kind of Nolan approach to making films is that I don't know if Tenet was ever going to be the the one that would win him the Oscars. It's probably whatever he's yeah. going to do next if he continues to take that approach to filmmaking. But Jay, what do you think about all this stuff that we've just been talking about for the last couple of minutes? And also, how are you doing? I'm doing okay, Scott. Um, yeah, I was reading about some of this too and how you know certain theaters are angling to open with the release of this and uh, I think Mulan. So... I don't know. I mean, it, it'd certainly be nice if we get to that point. I'm highly skeptical that we will, but you know, for now, just trying to enjoy the little things like this countdown. Yeah, and I do think one of the interesting points that I was listening to to some other podcasters talk about related to this the other day is that it maybe not as crazy as it sounds for you know movie theaters to literally open up for Tenet and then for Mulan because if you just think about the fact that. They're going to have even more theaters to run these movies with than usual because there aren't going to, there's going to literally be nothing else out in theaters for people to see that you, they can probably about even out if they practice social distancing and air quotes there in the movie theater by only selling 50 or 60 tickets to a, you know, a hundred or two or sorry, 200 person theater. The number of extra theaters and showtimes you'll be able to even out could in theory generate the same, if not more money than would be expected, as long as there is the appetite there to actually go out and see the movies themselves for people, which I think is the bigger question mark. But it, it was an interesting conversation that I was listening to around that half of the equation, I think, because I had been skeptical too that there would you know, even be enough theaters to show this film 
uh, with social distancing practices in place, which, cause I would assume that most theaters would, or no one would show up. Um, so that was an interesting discussion for that part, but then also, you know, will people be ready to go out and see tenant? Some people probably will be other people, families, especially, although I don't know how much of a family movie tenant is, uh, probably less so. Awesome. Well, as I already mentioned, today's topic of discussion will be The Prestige. Directed by Nolan and co-written with his brother Jonathan, The Prestige is based on a 1995 Christopher Priest novel and tells the story of the rivalry between two similar yet very different magicians in 1890s London. Alfred Borden, a working class magician played by Christian Bale, and Robert Angier, an aristocratic magician played by Hugh Jackman. Told with the to-be-expected interwoven timelines, now a, a classic of Christopher Nolan, the prestige opens with the apparent death of Angier, with the London authorities presuming the guilt of Borden, where he then goes on trial for that, for that murder. The setting then quickly shifts gears to the beginning of the story, with Borden and Angier under the tutelage of engineer John Cutter, played by Michael Caine, until the accidental death of Angier's wife, Julia, when she fails to escape a knot that Borden tied during a water tank trick. Angier accuses Borden of causing her death, and there starts the two's escalating rivalry with Angier and Cutter on one side, and Borden and his new engineer, Fallon, on the other. Angier becomes obsessed with unearthing the secret of Borden's The Transporting Man trick, and the story continues from there, operating across three different timelines. I'll stop the plot synopsis there to avoid any spoilers for now, but I've talked about three members of the cast, basically. There's about ten more uh, of relevant acclaim, I think, and, and we'll we'll get to all of them in turn. But like I said, I'll stop there. would love to hear what your guys' expectations were coming in for this rewatch of The Prestige. Jay, we'll start with you. They were high, Scott. Um, as I mentioned last week, you know, we, I to me, we're in a, a really great part of this countdown series, and uh, you know, without giving too much away, The Prestige is one of my favorite movies uh, of all time. And, you know, I watch it at least once a year. And this was the first time I was going to be watching it this year. So it had been a minute, but, you know, I was still like pretty excited, you know, maybe a little bit, uh, you know, I guess bogged down by, you know, everything we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. But what better time to watch one of my old favorite movies, right? Sure. Scott, what about you? Yeah, as far as my expectation goes, is it had been actually some years since I've watched this one. Unlike unlike some of the recent movies we've been talking about, which like like Insomnia and Batman Begins, I mentioned, I think I both watched them within the past year. Um, this one had been several years, and my my real memory in terms of what I thought of it was just that I was disappointed by the ending the first time that I, I watched, and I and I, I remembered part of the ending and one particular part that disappointed me. Um, but after watching it again, I, I don't think I understood. I remembered quite the whole context for the ending and sort of the double reveal that happens here at the end. But um, that was kind of what I uh, was feeling going into it that, yes, I remember absolutely enjoying the movie, liking it a lot, but feeling that it was probably in the lower tier of Nolan's uh, films because of, you know, the, the twist toward the end. Gotcha. All right. And why not go ahead and just get into what your experiences were watching it this time, Jay? Did it live up to your extremely high expectations? Yes. This this movie's great. Um, th this movie's amazing. Uh, and, you know, we'll go into all the reasons why. And Scott Harvey, I'll tell you all the reasons why you're wrong um, if you're <laughs> not matching me right now. But, um, yeah, to me, it, it very much lived up. Um, 
you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go into all those reasons that I, I can try to also avoid uh, talking too much about the twists, but you know, I, I still enjoyed them. You know, even after all this time, I still really enjoy watching this movie. I think for slightly different reasons each time. And again, we'll, we'll get into why that is uh, when we, I guess, lift the spoiler ban in a second, but it lived up. I had a great time. All right, Scott, what about you? Yeah, so I mean, I will just say as a preface that I think this is a very good movie. So, so that I don't get myself in trouble, I, I, I think this is a very good movie. I, it, it is, it's mesmerizing to watch. I think the performances are really strong. The production design is amazing. Um, I think that there, you know, there are some individual moments which just stick in your brain that are just really kind of brilliant. Um, but with that being said, you know, I feel pretty similar to how I did before about the prestige of the prestige. I think that so much of this movie because of how it is structured, because of even the, you know, the narration we get at the very beginning, which, you know, any, any film goer is going to know when you hear that narration, you know, you're watching a Christopher Nolan movie. Hey, he's not just talking about, you know, the structure of a magic trick here. He's talking about the structure of this movie, right? This movie is going to be organized like a magic trick. And so, so much depends on the prestige, right? the final part of that, that trick. Um, and I just think that there's something lacking there in that, that final act for a couple of reasons. Again, we won't quite get into the spoilers yet, but I do think that um, it's not satisfying. And also I think that Nolan, the director uh, as a director, um, he, he oversteps a little bit. And I think he, he, the ways in which he hides the truth from us the audience are very deliberate and um we'll talk we'll have i want to have some discussion about just what makes a good plot twist we've talked about scott and i have talked about that before on some like it scott and i think that in some ways this movie is almost a meta narrative on how plot twists work exactly yeah Um, and i think that for some reason or for for a few reasons this movie kind of breaks the main rule of of plot twists which is, can you actually figure out what the twist is going to be just by watching the movie? And because of some of the tactics that Nolan uses, again, to sort of deliberately hide the truth, obfuscate the truth from us, I think it, it makes it a little more difficult. But I don't want to say anything more right now about that because you know we, we will stay away from spoilers just for the beginning, even though I'm sure most people here probably have seen the movie, probably know the end. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll get to that in due time. As far as my general impressions... I do think it's a really good movie, but my opinion has not changed in terms of considering this in the lower tier of Nolan's uh, filmography, which, you know, is not saying is not a huge knock on it. I don't think because Nolan is such a strong, uh, strong filmmaker. I think at the end of the day, when we're all done with this countdown following is probably going to be the only movie that I'll look back at and say, well, I didn't really enjoy that movie. I didn't think that was a really good movie. I think, the rest of the movies in his filmography are four stars and up. Well, um, let's see. You haven't seen all of them yet, but well, I, that's true. I haven't, I have not seen interstellar. That is true, but I, I'm expecting that that will be the case based on my past impressions of, you know, the movies that I have seen. So sure. um, I do really like the prestige, but I'm not as gaga for it as not just you, not just you RJ, but a lot of people are a lot of people really hold this film in, in the same regard that you do. And it's just not there for me. Yeah. On a, com- on a completely unrelated podcast to, you know, talking about Christopher Nolan, someone did say it, the prestige came up and, and someone said that it was there 
in their opinion, Christopher Nolan's best film. So there's definitely a lot of people out there who who like it a lot. I, you know, this is the last one that of Christopher Nolan's filmography that I hadn't seen. I can't remember if I mentioned that last week on the podcast or not, but this is the other of the, you know, three movies, I guess, that I hadn't seen of Christopher Nolan. And, you know, I, I had the expectations that you come into watching any Christopher Nolan with movie with for the first time and thinking that, you know, this is the, the baseline expectation is that this is going to be a great movie. And, you know, there was a lot of people who I had conversations with Jay, you included over the years about this film, someone again, kind of completely unrelated this the other day had talked about how they thought the twist in the prestige was one of the greatest movie twists of all time, which I would strongly disagree with. I, I think that they haven't seen too many movies with incredible plot twists at the end of them. Not that the plot twist for the prestige isn't an interesting one, but to your point, Scott, I think that this plot twist is very intentionally trying to do something different. I think that it is a meta narrative on plot twists. I think it's a con a Christopher Nolan trying to get you to engage and question you know, what a plot twist is, what like what a magic trick is. And I think there's this real meta narrative that Nolan is is having on his own bag of tricks that he uses, not just in this film, but in other movies as well. And I think that it's really interesting from that perspective to think about from that perspective. I'll be also be interested to see as I revisit this film, because I, I plan to, I really thoroughly enjoyed watching this film, uh, how, how it changes and how different how multiple viewings change my perspectives on, on certain things that happen in this film. Uh, but just want to get that out of the way before I say, yeah, this was, I thought this was a great film. I think that of the films we've seen so far, this isn't lower tier. I mean, we've watched now five movies. It's definitely in the upper half of that. And I do want to have a, a check in at the end of this podcast, just now that we're halfway through rating the top five movies um, or sorry, not top five, but the rating, the five movies in, in order and, and ranking them uh, at the end. But to start with, to dive in a little bit more detail, I want to say early on, because I think that so much of this movie and, and I think so much of the conversation we're going to have is related to the twists and spoilers, is that don't feel too bad about getting into spoilers here. I think that if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably seen The Prestige, and uh, I think the whole point of this podcast is is kind of a companion piece to rewatching the films. So if you haven't seen The Prestige, maybe stop now, go watch it, come back. Uh, and I don't necessarily think that we'll explicitly get into spoilers too much in the first a uh, couple topics we hit, but if they do come up, I'm just going to say that they're out there and, and guys don't feel bad about hitting spoilers. And with that, why don't we go ahead and just start with kind of the two central uh, performances of the film. You have Christian Bale, who plays Alfred Borden, like I mentioned, who's this working class magician. And then his counterpart, Robert Angier, played by Hugh Jackman, uh, is an aristocratic magician. And, you know, their story starts off as kind of being in the same uh, under or under the same tutelage of the same magician and, and ingenue, but that quickly kind of fractures after the death of uh, Angier's wife, Julia, uh, during uh, a kind of a, a magic trick gone wrong, an underwater magic trick gone wrong. And they splinter. And guys, I'd just love to hear from you what these, you know, what you thought of these two performances. Christian Bale coming fresh off Batman begins with Nolan. Same for Michael Caine, but we'll get to him in a second. Guys, what did you think of these two? Yeah, I, I like both both of these performances a whole lot. I think that the the lead performances here are really um, some of the strong strongest parts of the movie, if not the strongest parts. Um, I do think that they differentiate differentiate their characters uh, enough to where you really do believe this rivalry. Um, uh, Angier just can't, you know, as the guy who just can't really get over this past tragedy that has happened to him. I have some issues maybe with whether or not I fully understand uh, or whether the movie makes us fully understand why he takes it so hard. But regardless, 
Um, I think Jackman is very effective as the more aristocratic guy. He's engaging with science, um, which is sort of like the historical element coming into the story that I think is really interesting and how magic and science were sort of starting to intertwine at, at this time in history. And Jackman's character and Angie are being the more, you know, wealthy man is kind of the one who is able to uh, reap the advantages of that and what's going on with Tesla and all of this. And Bale, I think, is effective as, you know, this sort of scrappy guy who all of a sudden, you know, be becomes sort of hypnotized by the upper class lifestyle that he finds himself in when he becomes a successful ma magician, right? When he is pulling off the transporting man trick and it is get gaining him notoriety throughout the country, um, you see him become a, a different person. And in particularly in his interactions with uh, Sarah, who is the Rebecca Hall character that he um, is in a relationship with. Um, and just sort of the way he, he, you know, fully commits to his, his magician career in a way that he kind of just puts her in, on the back burner and their child on the back burner. Um, and, uh, I mean, I, I believed the, the steps that he took and I thought that the clash between these two men, um, is for the most part, pretty effectively portrayed. Um, and that both of these guys, despite having, you know, movie star charisma, movie star looks, um, really buy into what Nolan is doing here and, you know, sort of disappear into their roles and don't just coast along on that charisma. Yeah, it's a super interesting role reversal coming off, you know, for Christian Bale coming off of someone who is like the ultimate aristocrat in, in Bruce Wayne, although, of course, yeah. he, he's also Batman. And then Hugh Jackman playing, of course, uh, you know, Wolverine and Logan, who, again, kind of the opposite of an aristocratic figure. He, he's working class, very kind of grungy almost. And it's interesting how they are able to so effectively flip their roles, at least from, I guess, from a blue collar, white collar sense, if that's a way to think about it. And like you said, disappear into those roles the way, that, the way that they do. It's it's really impressive. Jay, what do you think? Yeah, that uh, the role reversal was not lost on me, uh, not just because, you know, we watched Batman Begins last week, um, but, you know, Bale in particular, like, I, I, I really just buy him as, you know, this, like, arrogant, scrappy magician who, you know, like, you know, at some points thinks he's, like, clearly thinks he's smarter than everyone, um, you know, and it just, you know, really wants to make it and just has like the talent to do so. Right. Um, even, you know, if, if he's a bit of a jerk along the way, you know, certainly I think the first time I watched this movie weirdly was around the time the whole Christian Bale rant on set happened. If you guys remember that. So yeah, the Terminator you know, salvation stuff. Oh, good for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, thinking of, you know, that guy playing Alfred Borden was actually, uh, quite fun for me. Um, and then Hugh Jackman too, you know, uh, again, you know, doing a bit of a role reversal from what we're seeing him do uh, as Logan and Wolverine, you know, I, I think brought it for the most part. Uh, there is one scene that, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll touch on that I actually, you know, didn't think he, he brought it that well, but g as a general rule, you know, he, you know, I, I really buy into his obsession and uh, Scott Harvey, just to deviate a little bit away from you. I mean, I think what what we kind of see is that at least to me, you know, it really does end up not being about avenging his wife. Right. Like it really just has become his obsession with Borden and this trick. I mean, there is even that one line where he says, you know, like, I don't care about my wife. I care about his secret when he's trying to mm -hmm. uh, decipher the notebook. And so I don't know. I mean, to me, like that obsession, uh, I mean, is gripping. I mean, I, I even call it like beautiful in like a weird way. Like it, it, it really just is awesome. Like watch it, watching him, like, you know, try to crack the transported man. And then, like you said, you know, uh, 
exercises money and wealth to, you know, merge with the science and really put on a show uh, towards the end. No, I, I agree. I think that that is what it eventually becomes, right? Because that's also what it eventually becomes for for Borden. He he leaves behind, you know, the woman that he loves in the same way because he is obsessed with with uh, with Angier, of course. You know, he, Borden is being the one who is getting the upper hand for most of the movie until, you know, the, the last third when uh, when Angier comes up with his own version of the trick that Borden just can't really figure out. We see him, you know, becoming obsessed in the same way that Angier is for, you know, a large part of the movie. So I think, yes, eventually it becomes that. But the initial driving force is his wife's death, which, I, I, again, I, I think that the, the female characters here are given short shrift a little bit to an extent that uh, I was I, I don't know that I fully bought into him being so broken about his wife's death, not because a man can't be broken about his wife's death. But just because we don't really have any context for their relationship in the movie. Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that that you're left to assume a little bit about what Hugh Jackman's relationship is with with uh, you know with his wife who played who's played by Piper Perabo, I believe Julia. And I think that that is fine. Like, look, I understand. Like, you can only give so much context. It, it maybe is particularly jarring because the first time you you see them together, it's not immediately clear that they're married because they are kind of in disguise in the audience and brought up on stage. And it, you, you form this first impression about their, the two of them. And, and then you kind of have to, you have to, I guess, reorganize that as, as you learn more about what's going on. And you, all this happens very quickly too. You're not given very much time to do that before the plot has to, to move forward and move along. But overall, I think that these performances are fantastic. It's, it's hard for me to say even which, which for Bale, which one of these performances is better, whether it's his performance as you know Bruce Wayne or Alfred Borden. I, I, I lean a little bit towards Borden, uh, but we're also about to watch one of, if not my favorite movie of all time next week. So we'll see if I flip back the other direction when we're talking about The Dark Knight next week. So uh, yeah, overall, it's a fantastic performance. I, I do think that so much of this film just evolves into, you know, simply put, an escalating rivalry, but two people you know, one dimensionally obsessed with the other and one dimensionally obsessed with this idea of success being, I have figured out this person's trick and I can do it better than them. Or I can get this new trick that is outdoing or outperforming my rival. And, and I think it's super interesting because so often I think we talk about um, movies and, and how their characters are often successful or interesting based on how nuanced they are. Right. How like two dimensional three or sorry, how three dimensional the character is. But the reality is, is that these two men are just so obsessively one dimensional. And I find that it's still really interesting that they are super engaging, super, super interesting characters and two characters that you're invested in for better or for worse. Like you're invested in what's going to happen to these two people and, and what's going on. I think that it's, that's impossible not to be. At least I found it that way, even though ultimately you may not be pulling for either one of them at the end of the film based on how they treat some of the other people on the periphery of, of their lives. And I, and I find that to be one of, one of the real magic tricks of this film is how they're able to uh, so, so effectively invest in and engage you in these two characters who are fairly reprehensible, uh, all things considered when you, when, when the way, at least with the way that they're treating the people, the people around them. And I do think Scott, and I would agree with you here and, and this will be a nice transition into the supporting cast that the weakest part of this film is the female supporting characters. I think that, that, Scarlett Johansson and and Piper Perabo and Rebecca Hall. I mean, less so Piper Perabo just because she dies so early in the film. But those two characters of, of Scarlett Johansson 
uh, who plays Olivia and Rebecca Hall, who plays Sarah, which is Borden's wife. Uh, really, I do think at the short end of the stick. And I think I'm left asking a few questions, especially about Sarah, uh, maybe a little bit less so about Olivia. I think that one's a little bit better done, but a little bit about Olivia, but uh, sorry, a little bit about Sarah. But guys, before I give my thoughts on the rest of the supporting cast, you have Scarlett Johansson and Rebecca Hall, who I've already mentioned. You have Michael Caine, who plays this ingenue uh, mentor, particularly for Angier over most of the film, but at the beginning, both of them, uh, his name's Michael Cutter. Uh, there's also David Bowie, who plays Nikola Tesla. There's Andy Serkis, who pops up as Tesla's assistant, and a few other people here and there. Scott, if we start with you, who in the supporting cast, if you had to pick one person, stood out the most? Oh, if I had to pick one, I don't know. It, it's a toss-up between Kane and Bowie, I think. I think that they're both really good. Yeah. Um, I mean, Bowie's a great choice for playing this sort of eccentric Victorian scientist. I mean, he slides into the role very easily, I think. But I really do like Michael Caine's role. I mean, it's a very Michael Caine performance, right? Like, he's not straying too far from what we see as Alfred. But yeah, and in, I and, like his... and Inception too. I forget his character's name in yeah. Inception right now, but yeah, Cobb's father, right? Um, and yeah. and I think that I do like I really like his role as the sort of moral compass in the movie, right? Because for a lot of the movie, he is on Angier's side because he sees, Bor you know, Borden's tactics and the fact that Borden is constantly showing up and ruining the tricks and, you know, physically injuring Angier. He sees that, you know, Borden as clearly being in the wrong, which I think we kind of as the audience do as well. And we see Angier as this guy who's just, you know, really sad about his wife's death and wants to, you know, try to get some sort of magic career going. But then things shift, right, as, as the movie goes on. And, um, you know, as uh, Angier is forced to, to adapt his tactics and make them a lot more like Borden's, we see, you know, he loses Cutter in the process and Cutter really turns against him in the final um, third of the movie because he's lost himself. And so I, I like that role of Michael Caine as sort of being the audience surrogate in a way and, uh, you know, portraying what our feelings are towards the characters for, you know, most of the movie and where our alliances sort of shift. And when, when they shift, I thought he was, you know, a, a very effective uh, person to cast in that role. And I think I thought the part worked well. Jay, what about you? Uh, Michael Caine is the obvious choice here. Um, I won't talk too much. I actually won't talk any more on that. Um, Scott Harvey, you said it pretty well. So I'll go ahead and focus on Andy Serkis. And I think part of uh, what really like, you know, like swept me away, uh, maybe a, a slight exaggeration, but I guess part of what captivated me uh, was that I think the most two recent times I've seen Andy Serkis or heard him on screen have been in our last two countdowns, namely as Ulysses Claw and Snoke. Um, and just seeing him take on this very different role, you know, this like, you know, cheesy kind of smart, but like easily mystified almost to like scientist assistant who, you know, also has a cunning side as you later find out, you know, like it just, it was so different. And like, I don't know, it, it, I know this movie came out a while ago, um, you know, and I guess just seeing him go back uh, in time and, you know, just play this character. It's very different from the last two roles I've seen him in, you know, uh, was just a lot of fun. Yeah, it's really interesting to see Andy Serkis pop up in random roles. I forget there was a movie I was watching a couple years ago that just so randomly had him in like almost a, a cameo role. I want to say it's like Logan Lucky or something. I don't know. He's just like randomly in some films sometimes. Yeah, but I mean, obviously super well known for a lot of his uh, his motion capture work, his mocap work. I mean, with Gollum kind of 
you know, in early 2000s in Lord of the Rings. And then I guess he didn't, it wasn't really mocap what he did for Ulysses Claw, although there was some element of it with his arm, I think motion captured, but with Caesar, he playing Caesar in the Planet of the Apes, the new Planet of the Apes trilogy. And so whenever you get to see Andy Serkis' actual real face uh, on a screen, I think it's a bit of a treat because he's a really good actor, right? Like he is also an extremely talented actor. Um, it's soon soon to be maybe uh, director of you know probably what's going to be your favorite film next year, Jay Venom too. But uh, let there be carnage. Yeah, let well, there be carnage. Yeah, yeah really beautiful <laughs> title. There. Be Alfred. Let's not forget about that. Alfred Pennyworth uh, in the Batman movie. That's true. Yeah. That is true. I forgot about that. That that we yeah. I guess which 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 is coming out first? I think Venom Two is coming out first. Venom Two is coming out first. Yeah. Um, it, Anyway, I think that, you know, Andy Serkis was interesting. Uh, to me, he didn't really have enough to leave a real impression uh, one way or the other. I think it it's a little bit more than a cameo, but it's not even really um, a major supporting role, I wouldn't say. And to me, Michael Caine or David Bowie, for sure. I, I wish that I could say Scarlett Johansson. I think this is probably the earliest film of hers that I've seen. I don't know if I've seen too much before. I know she has. I mean, she was starring in movies in the '90s, I think. But I think her, you know, this was one of the first significant roles that she had in Lost in Translation. Was uh, yeah, her well, first breakthrough. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Lost in Translation. Um, I guess I have seen her in a movie before this. Then, uh, anyway, so I, I wanted to say Scarlett Johansson, and of the women, you know, the three women in this film who have at least somewhat significant roles. I think that she does get the best one, but I'd have to go with Michael Caine as well. I think David Bowie, Scott, you're also right about that being kind of a, a real, ex, you know, just playing the eccentric, you know, reclusive, uh, you know, genius. It, it's just such a good fit for him, both in, in real life. Because and he in was film. an eccentric <laughs> genius in real life. Yeah, yeah exactly. A, a genius of a different flavor and in, in terms of his yeah. talent, but uh, I think it, it works all the same. As, we, as kind of a weird and oddball as that subplot is, uh, of course, nece necessary for the plot and and the science aspect of what's going on with Angier's eventual transported man trick, but uh, a really interesting, uh, uh, if not strange, kind of addition to the movie. But we can maybe talk more about that. A anything else in terms of the, the cast that you guys do want to talk about? I mean, I will just say about the female characters, I think I've kind of said that I think they get short shrift, but... I first of all, I don't like the way that Scarlett Johansson's character is basically just she's so submissive to these men. Right. It's she starts out. She's in a relationship with with Angier. She's very committed to him. And then she shifts allegiances so fast. It's like she falls for Gordon. She's she's, you know, at his beck and call. She's tricking Angier. I, I just felt like it wasn't the greatest portrayal of her as a character for, for her to be so amenable to the whims of these you know toxic dudes uh, so i didn't like that element of her character even if you know the performance is fine rebecca hall scott you know i'm a massive fan of her she's probably my top two favorite actresses so i'm gonna pretty much always think that she deserves to be on screen more but i definitely think she she deserves to be on screen more in the prestige and i think her role is is pretty insubstantial and i guess i saw what they were going for it just it wasn't fully realized to me. And so that was a disappointment. And this is, this is a, a constant theme, right? It's not necessarily something that we've talked about yet in the countdown, but maybe will be worth addressing as we go on is the role of female characters in Nolan movies, because I think that he does catch some flack for not being a particularly great writer of female characters for not, not having very many nuanced female characters. If you look at, you know, his filmography as a whole and, you know, 
again, we'll see how it develops, but I don't know that I necessarily disagree with that at this moment in time. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess of the ones we've watched so far, the in, in Insomnia would probably be the best one, right? I think that, yeah, I think Hillary Swank is probably the best one, but even then, I think uh, the, there is some like awkward elements to it in terms of how it's written in terms of character maybe it's the best one but yeah i don't i don't know if the character from in, in memento is written all that well although of course that's some interesting reveals around that character but yeah i think that i think that's fair we can i definitely think that we should continue to talk about that as it comes up and we'll certainly be talking about it next week uh for several different reasons probably with with rachel and the dark knight and uh, eventually ellen page's character in inception so on and so forth but I think for this one, I think that's a fair point. I guess I didn't have as many problems with uh, with Scarlett Johansson's character because I viewed it less as submissive and more just like, all right, I was in love with with Angier, and you know, I realized that he didn't love me the way that I loved him, and I am actually not being super submissive to Borden, but actually, this is my way of like getting back at him and a sort of revenge take on it, uh, and then only just- then. I, I will say that I think the negative part of it is that like she has to for some, like she has to bounce from one relationship eventually to another relationship. I think that maybe the story was better told. I mean, I understand why the story ultimately develops in the way that it does, but it is a little bit of a question mark and character writing flaw, probably if the the ultimate characterization of one of your female characters is just that she is, you know, the mistress of both of your other male characters at different points in the movie. I think it's, it's less of a submissive thing for me and, and more just like, uh, I think that this, this, this woman could probably do more than just ultimately be the, uh, end up like for the plot wise, be, be the, be the mistress of these men. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's what I was going to, that was kind of what I wanted to say, I guess, I probably used the wrong word in saying submissive, but yeah, I, I just wanted there to, for her that, I just wanted for there to be more for her to do than just to fall in love with these dudes. And I guess, you know, she, she does have some role in tricking Angier in the end with yeah. the whole diary and all of that. But um, still, I just felt like, can't we, can't she have a platonic relationship with one of these guys and still, I mean, can she have a platonic relationship with, um, with Gordon and still, you know, do the diary thing and still yeah. trick Angier? go through all of that i just don't know why she has to be like the. i mean and, and maybe there's a point there about how oh well she falls for both of them because they're kind of the same guy in the end i mean i'm sure that that's part of it but i it just was a little hard to swallow yeah i think what you're also forgetting is scott is that this is 1890s london so no you're actually not allowed to have a platonic relationship uh with a man <laughs> in, in the 1890s but jay yeah. any, any last thoughts on this before we move on Nothing terribly new. I think that if I were to watch like a, a super cut of just Scarlett Johansson's performance, I actually would think it was like, all right. Like I, you know, I, I agree that, you know, the, the female side characters really aren't given that much to do, but I still thought Scarlett Johansson was like, I mean, she's the third name that comes to mind. Uh, you know, when I think of this movie and that's obviously like act in terms of actors. Um, oh. And, you know, that, that might not be great. You know, if we go back to that discussion about Christopher Nolan writing women in general, because um, you know, I'm not sure I'd go much higher than third in any of the movies uh, in his filmography, but we'll, you know, circle back to that later. I still think she does well. I think Rebecca Hall does fine. Um, you know, in terms of how they are as characters, you know, the more you think about it, uh, especially, you know, uh, as it, how it, you know, relates to the twist, it, it certainly does them like a little bit of a disservice, but, you know, I, I can, I can understand again, you know, for the sake of writing, how it kind of had to turn out like that. Yeah, maybe. Maybe that is the case. 
before we do move on to the plot and the themes, and I and I will want to circle back around to talk about these these women. It is a specific topic that I want to talk about, particularly Rebecca Hall's character. Any thoughts on the production aspects? You know, I I could be wrong, but I think this move this one got a nom- Academy Award nomination for cinematography, which for the life of me, I, I don't particularly understand why. I, I mean, I think. Scott, you're spot on at the beginning saying the production design is incredible. I think that the feel of 1890s London, the key takeaway that I had from it, and I wrote this in my review on Letterboxd, is that just imagine if Christopher Nolan decided to make a Sherlock Holmes like a uh, film or trilogy next. Like that'd just be incredible the way what, what he's able to to capture in, in this set and this production design. But guys, what did you think of the other aspects? You know, whether it be the cinematography, the production design, the score, uh, anything along those lines. Certainly as the more novice person on this podcast when it comes to these things, um, I, I'd, I'd like to just go first uh, and just say, I mean, I thought, you know, it all, it all looked and felt, you know, the way I guess I would expect 1890s London to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, again, I can't really speak to, you know, whether I think the cinematography is Oscar worthy or not. Well, um, I mean, like, did, did you think it's like this was amazing? Like, forget the Oscar comment or not. Just like, what did you think of the cinematography? No, I, I thought it was cool. And I thought the score was good, too. Um, mm-hmm. That was actually one part of the movie I did want to highlight that I didn't think about going into it, um, mm-hmm. but really enjoyed actually as it played out. Um, and in terms of the way it was shot, the look and the feel, you know, I, I thought it was great. Scott, what do you think? The score didn't leave that much of an impact on me, to be quite honest. I think because Nolan's films that do generally have strong or at least memorable scores, um i was expecting something like that from this and i don't know it it doesn't stand out in my mind but i i mean i agree i i think that the production design is the the strong uh strongest part of the you know different aspects you've named there um i think that you know they the atmosphere like the sort of gothic dark atmosphere of victorian england i mean it's perfectly realized i think with uh with the sets and everything here and so i you know i thought it was a really effective uh, I mean, that was, again, that was the aspect which struck me as watching it. I think that they really effectively immerse you in this t- time and place, which I think is something Nolan is generally good at. Cinematography, yeah, I mean, take it or leave it. They, again, there aren't individual shots or anything that really stuck out to me in my head. I mean, I'm sure it was solid cinematography, but I don't really know what else was nominated that year. It may, maybe it was a weak year, who knows? But um, overall, I think it's, it's a, technically it's a, it's a very solid movie. Yeah, it almost I, I'd have to go look too. I, I assume the departed was also up for that. Yeah, I don't know if they got a cinematography nomination, Maybe. but that I mean, didn't like those a, pictures. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was just thinking of other of other films that would have been in competition with it. But no, I think that between the production design and the costumes and hair and makeup, which are obviously a really important part of it any time you set up a period drama, I think it all does really well. And uh, I don't know if I have too much more to add than that. So if we're all ready, I think we'll go ahead and, and jump right in first place to start we kind of talked about it in the setup the death of, of Angier's wife julia i think that there is this really big question and quite literally big question because it seems like it gets yelled over and over again in a couple scenes about like you know which knot did you tie you know over and over in it and then borden that that being yelled of course by angier at the funeral and and kind of in the moment as well i believe and and christian bale's uh borden's response being honestly i don't know i don't remember uh, from the trauma, whether that be from the trauma of the situation or being unwilling to admit his own fault, whatever that might be. I think that's kind of the big first plot point of the film, guys. And I'd just love to get your thoughts on that and how it kind of sets up this rivalry. Scott, you mentioned earlier that this was something that maybe you didn't fully understand how it 
drove Angier and, and you know Hugh Jackman's character to the links that they, he goes to even at the beginning of of the film. But I didn't know if you had any other thoughts on this particular plot point. And then Jay, we'll jump over to you as well. I mean, I guess I, I don't know that there he goes to many links at the beginning just because it's mostly Borden who's doing the sabotage um, towards the you know in, in the beginning half of the film. But it was shoots just his, he shoots his finger off. He goes he shows up to his. That is true. Who's act and yeah. tries to kill him? Um, that that is true. I forgot about that. But it's more. It was more just the point of not understanding the context behind their relationship, and so um, you know, not, just not having a good sense for how closely connected they were. You know, things like that, and so it having a strong as an impact on him. It, I mean, I I get it, but not beyond any level of oh, his wife died. He's a dude. He was married to this lady. His wife died. Of course he's sad. I, and I, I guess I just wanted more than that, more than just a general like common sense, like, oh, of course he's, you know, upset because his wife died. So that was, I, I guess, where it was a little uh, bit of a letdown for me. But I think that um, this element of the movie works pretty well. And I mean, personally, I think I think Borden knows what knot he tied. I mean, that that's my opinion, because I think I think a lot of this movie is about, you know, who's going to go the furthest to do the trick, right? To, to have the most impressive trick. And that's what this whole tying knot situation is about. It's about uh, Bale wants to tie, Borden wants to tie the, the, the tougher knot and even has the conversation with, with Julia, right? About um, can you escape from this knot? And she's like, yeah, I can do it. And, and Angier of course is the one who says, no, you're not going to do it. But I think Borden all along wants to tie this knot because he wants to make the trick more difficult, right? E even if no one else can even perceive that, right? Even if no one else can even see that he's tied a more difficult knot than usual, he knows it, right? And it's just that about that thrill of the chase of getting the perfect trick. Um, and, and so I think he knows exactly what what knot he ties. And so I think, yeah, that that sets up what we see for the rest of the movie because it's all about them and how far they will go for the transported man trick and, you know, to have this this incredible trick that captivates everyone um and you know most importantly to outdo the other person so um i think i thought that that worked yeah as, uh, the perfect something is is a thing that re recurs over christian bell's characters over time perfect uh, lap. also in and after that perfect lap in ford versus ferrari jay what did you think you know the whole the, i guess the way i feel about her uh, like julia's death is it, it's kind of the thing like I said, that kind of, you know, it starts the fire, I guess. But, you know, as we, you know, go later and later into the movie, it gets to the point where Hugh Jackman's character, Angier, pretty much says, you know, like it has, it does, this doesn't have anything to do with his wife's death anymore, even if it's how it started. Like this, this hatred and this obsession, you know, is taking on just like, uh, just, it, it's taking on a new form in, you know, trying to chase down the perfect trick and figure out the other person's right. Like, you know, it, it and so, you know, it's not really a letdown to me in that, you know, it, it's kind of what starts it. And I think like an hour into the movie, I'm not even thinking about the fact that uh, Borden, you know, m might be slash is responsible for the death of Angier's wife. It, to me, like, you know, it, it really just is, you know, like these guys are just in this battle now. Like they've both kind of forgotten why, but it doesn't even to me like serve a purpose of like settling any kind of score. It's literally just I need to take you out because like that's just what needs to happen now. And in terms of the not tying thing, and I, I think this is, I think we have to just jump into spoiler territory uh, for me now. I think part of the reason, like, I actually, to me, 
he doesn't know which knot he tied because he's not the one who tied the knot, right? You know, again, going full spoilers here now. Well, um, I mean, we don't know that. Well, but here, okay, and like this is, I don't, I don't want to like jump too far ahead, but one of the things that I love about this movie, at least to me, like I feel like when I'm rewatching it, again, last warning, um, is that, you know, I can, I, I feel like you can almost tell who Christian Bale is playing in the moment. Um, in the way that like the character like just behaves everything from like mannerisms to speech to temper like to me like you can like you can tell upon like upon like a, maybe not even a second but like a third or a fourth rewatch and to me like that's why like I like this movie so much one of the big reasons so to me you know just to I guess talk about the funeral scene like the the Borden that showed up is not the Borden that tied the knot the Borden that tied the knot is the angrier like more aggressive you know one uh you know and the one who you don't think they had a you don't think they had a conversation at some point about which knot did you tie like you don't think that ever came up between the two of them i mean it might have but it's also the kind of thing that like if i were in that situation i might just be like don't tell me i'm i'm gonna plead ignorance because like i you know but we're not even introduced to fallon yet like the like i mean i know we're gonna full spoilers like that's not a character in the film yet like i don't think that 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 they're swapping like lives yet i don't think that's a thing that's happening you don't, I mean, so, I, and that that's something that I guess isn't made terribly clear, but to me, like, it, it has to have been happening before then. Like, I, I guess my question is, if not, where is the other, where is the other Borden at this point? Um, yeah, I, I mean, look, like, it's possible. That's, that's very true. I mean, I mean, it's a fair point. It's a fair question that you're asking, especially if he's keeping it a secret or whatever and keeping it a secret through the entire film i mean isn't that the whole point right like that that that's what it takes like you can't slip up for even a second you have to always be living the deception so to me like you know that they've been doing the swap even if the other isn't taking on a new form that we see yet sure i guess i guess i just don't fully oh one i haven't only seen the movie once so i mean maybe, maybe this will change over time that's interesting if there really is a different performance each time because I don't think you're even supposed to know who is like which one is which. You never get you never get the sense of which which one is the angry exactly one. Exactly why is the, the twist is impossible to figure no, no, no. out. But no, that that this is where I completely disagree. I'm sorry, like just going off the rails here. Like I, I like you know I I think you can, and I don't. It's the kind of thing that I think you like I I I don't think you necessarily could figure it out on a first watch, and maybe I'll agree with that. But I think the reason I like this movie so much is when you're watching it for a second, third, fourth time, especially with someone who's watching it for the first time, you just accept so much like that just like passes by you that is either spoiling the like spoiling the twist or it's just outright like impossible. And you just don't question it. Things like, you know, Borden not knowing what knot he tied or, you know, Borden like doubling back on things he said to his wife or his daughter, like, you know. Oh, like his daughter's saying, you know, like, oh, like, you know, are we going to go to the zoo today? And Borden says, no. And then she goes, but you promised. And he goes, oh, did I? Okay, then I guess we're going, you know, because. Sure. No, but that, but that is, I mean, that is a completely different situation than because, okay, because here's the thing, right? Like, uh, obviously in that situation, it's the person who, like the, the version of Borden that you're getting is the version who isn't the one who's actually in love with Sarah. Or maybe not. But the thing is, like, you don't even know. You don't even know who made the promise to the kid. And I think that, like, I think the point of the character, and I know we've gotten way off track for from, like, the different plot points we're talking about. I think the point of the character is that I don't think you're supposed to be able to tell. And that doesn't mean that the performances aren't 
slightly or subtly different because there are certain points where you're like, okay, I know which one this is because because when you go back and think about it, like, all right, this is the one who is in love with Olivia. This is the one who's in love with Sarah. Like you get those things, you you get those tidbits, but like ultimately in scenes when you're away from those people, it, like if you're interacting with Cutter or if you're in, like if he's interacting with um with Angier like I don't like I or, or like who even the one is that's imprisoned right like I'm not even sure you're supposed to know which one is which and I don't no, think I think that's not, I don't even think that's the sure. point like I don't think it matters which one it is perhaps not I think I, I would encourage you to rewatch the movie and almost like play this game of seeing if you can figure out like where the two versions like you know show up and don't sure. I don't know I mean, that just feels like a, a like a perception bias question. Like you're gonna you're gonna see what you want to see and and come up with. And like if you think it's going to be this version, then that. Because I mean, just to go back to your original point around him not knowing which which Nani ties. Correct me if I'm wrong here, because you guys have you guys have both seen the movie more than I have. But he's but he's asked which knot he tied in the moment, and he doesn't know. And then he's asked again at the funeral, and he doesn't know then either. So I I don't know how you're supposed to distinguish those two. He wasn't asked in the moment. I, th- I think if I if I remember the scene correctly, like she dies and then it just cuts to like the next scene. Like it doesn't happen like on stage or it's not like as he's walking remember. out of the theater. No, I definitely <laughs> I don't, don't remember which knot I thought. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. No um, one remembers the knot that was tied. I don't know. I am glad we brought this up because I think it, it'll actually be useful to tie into some of the other conversations we have going. But I don't know. I guess you could chalk it up to perception bias. But to me, like there is a clear difference and it's something that they throw I you think clear is a really strong word. If there was a clear difference, you'd be able to catch it on the first watch. watch. It. No, but that, that, that that's the whole point. I, is like you're looking I would at like it to watch it now that you said it. That. I th- I think you should rewatch it and just see if you can tell. Like it, Yeah, but I think I think that we can I, I say that think, the, the, the clear the clear adjective probably isn't the right one to yeah. use. And there becomes a part point where it's too subtle, I think. I don't know. I mean, Maybe. like at some points his wife is literally telling you like some days you love me and some days you don't, like, you know. Yeah, no, but that but that's not what you're talking about. Like that that level of detail is not what you're talking about. Because if that's the level of detail you're talking about, then yeah, at certain points in the movie, you can you can say which one it is based on what his wife is saying or what even Olivia is saying. You like that detail is there, sure. If that's what you're saying, then we're I'll, on the same page. I'll, but you're I'll going go it seems like you're going way it, deeper than that. I'll go as far as to say in almost every, if not every scene, in my mind, I can distinguish the two. That's correct. I mean that that's wild. I'm not saying you're you're right or wrong. I'm just saying that's that's a that's sure. wild. That's uh, I will just leave this discussion at that. Yeah. Well, I think with that discussion temporarily behind us, because I mean eventually we, we are going to come back to the to the finale of the film. I want to talk about kind of the one dimensionality of you know these lead characters that I I kind of talked about earlier and how obsessive they are. You know, maybe at first it's the reason that that Angier uses the death of his wife maybe for Borden. It's the fact that he shot his finger off. You know, in the trick, it you know it starts somewhere, but at some point, it, it just becomes I want to be better than the other person. My idea of success in life is that I can do a better trick, or that I can just perform something better. And I want to talk about that, and I want to talk about this whole notion. I think of, of class warfare that I think goes along with that. I think for Borden, uh, what you can say is that it involves, if it ever was something about shooting off his finger, it was about you know showing that you know I as a working class magician. I'm willing to get my hands dirty. And because of that, I'm a better magician than you and I can be a better magician. And uh, I think some part of it again for, for Angier is starting off maybe the excuse being the death of my wife, but ultimately becoming, I can't less let this like less than me magician, you know, outsmart and out 
outperform me when I have all of these resources that I have to prove that I'm that I'm worthy of my aristocratic title. I, I want to get your guys' thoughts on, on how much you think that's layered in to the film and if it does that class sort of warfare element uh, justice as well. Scott, we'll start with you. Yeah, I, I think I agree with, you know, the way that you've set it up. I think what we see, honestly, is that they become each other. And, they, you know, kind of like I've been saying all along is they, they prove that ultimately, you know, they're on the same path to destruction, sort of, because they're both obsessed. They're both willing to do whatever it takes. Doesn't matter who who's going to, you know, be pushed pushed aside in, the, in their wake to get that perfect trick. And I mean, the perfect the, the great shot, I guess there is a shot that sticks out to me. Um, and it's, you know, Angier under the stage after he's done the transporting man, just listening as the audience, uh, you know, erupts for, for the trick being performed correctly for the first time. I and mean, that's, a, that's a brilliant shot that I think, you know, sums up exactly what they're all about. They, they live for that attention um, and they, they live for, for that applause um, because at least for that moment, it makes them feel like, you know, they're, they're maybe they're better than the other person. So, I mean, I think this is the theme, which, which definitely works. And, and maybe it's a little bit belabored because it is, you know, such a, such a, so strong throughout the entire movie. But I mean, it's, it's what the movie is about. I, I can't fault it too much for, uh, for leaning pretty hard into the obsession element, because I think, you know, again, both, both guys are on the path to destruction and they both end up destroying themselves in a way or destroying the, the you other, know, their, yeah, yeah de destroying any sense of themselves kind of in, in the end. Uh, and so I don't really have too many problems with the way that this theme develops over the course of the movie. Yeah. Jay, what about you? Yeah. I don't really have qualms with that myself either. I think, you know, it, it is kind of, it would be impossible. I think to, separate the class warfare element of you know their rivalry from you know just the professional like who can be a better magician um again you know like you said you know, to the point where it is all consuming and ultimately does lead to you know their downfall and you know how much they do crave the attention and the applause funny enough uh you know the the, the scene that actually sticks out to me uh when Angier's performing the the transported man uh, you know, using uh, the the body double Rue uh, is actually the Rue. one where he, yep, where he, uh, you know, goes underground and actually breaks his leg, and then Borden shows up, you know, you know, with uh, the double like you know tied like you know tied up and like slowly being lowered down, and he's like, ah, like you know, there's simply too much magic, you know, like he's clearly just like this is a terrible idea, right? Like you're definitely escalating the situation quite a bit and you even see you know fallon kind of laughing in the audience um himself like you know in my mind thinking you know this is a terrible idea but this is awesome um you know it's, it's moments like that that to me you know really just highlight you know how far you know they're willing to go uh without you know and not even realizing you know they're you know probably like spelling their own doom thinking you know they're taking someone else down it, it's it's awesome yeah, it, it is one of these interesting parts. I think after after you get the initial scene of, of Angier showing up in disguise at one of Borden's events and trying to kill him uh, by putting the bullet or whatever it was or button or whatever he might have had into the gun uh, for that trick. And and then uh, since then, it, it kind of starts at this kind of really baseline low level of trying to one up each other. And, and it builds, right? It builds to, you know, Angier um, getting his leg broken, right? By, by Borden. 
um, and being set with a limp. And then from there, it escalates further to ultimately where Angier at the end sets up this trick where he it's designed to get Borden killed. And then uh, at the end, once one of the Bordens is dead, no trick involved whatsoever. Well, I should say maybe the ultimate trick, the prestige moment even, is when he shows up and turns out there's either, you know, well, there's at least one Borden left, and uh, uh, he he finishes his trick by by shooting Angier and uh, all the other clones at that point, I think, have, have been killed. So that's an interesting part <clears throat> as well, and I think that it really does build off each other super well. I think that at, you know at some point, I think the class warfare element of it maybe gets lost in the midst. I mean, there's always this, this uh, perpetual theme of every time Angier puts on a show, it's in this like really showy auditorium, uh, really upscale, really aristocratic and elite looking. And Borden's shows always seem to be not necessarily in smaller theaters, although I think that often ends up being the case, but a little bit grungier, a little bit more dirtier, a little bit dirtier, a little bit more working class feel. And I don't know if there was like a super good payoff on that, because by the end they're both rich right like they're both being right they're both really successful as magicians because of this trick so i mean borden may have started out as working class but he isn't really yeah but i, I think it's one of those things where like they they they, they represent in their in their in their magician tactics the values right? of yeah. yeah exactly and um I, I don't know if that necessarily gets a payoff in the end but it is it i mean it's pretty consistent throughout and i think the obsessed to uh, you know the obsession the two of them have with each other it just shows that that transcends class boundaries right it transcends what they had and what, and what the two are ultimately willing or capable of doing turns out yes throughout the majority of the film maybe there was this thing where angier is afraid to get his hands dirty and that's why he can't do magic like borden can but ultimately he does get his hands dirty he is willing to do it to get his hands right in his own elitist aristocratic way at some point through science and uh, y- you get that finale of the film. I think two things left before we do reach the finale. I know we're, we're really talking through a lot here, but I do want to talk about the women, uh, maybe more so Rebecca Hall's Sarah and, and what happens with her character. Ultimately, she commits suicide, uh, we find out. And as well as Scarlett Johansson's Olivia and and how all that interplays. Uh, ultimately, the central part about both of it is that they both think that they're in love with a man when in reality they're in love with half of, of a man. If you think about the, you know, the day-to-day experience that they're having half the time, they are with the person that they are in love with half the time. They're not. And for one of them, you know, the wife who she, you know, she has a child with, with Borden has another child separate from that. I think I can't, she, they have two children, right? Basically one of them is Borden's and the other one is one that Rebecca Hall already had from a previous marriage. Well, yeah, or, Because he, she brings him to the, time when she meets Borden exactly for the first time yeah. yeah but then there's also i think P- penny is that his daughter's name borden's daughter's name because he has an actual Maybe. daughter yeah i don't yeah anyway so i it, you know it drives her this inability to wrap her mind around and then ultimately when she does have this hypothesis about what is actually going on it ultimately drives her to p- commit suicide which i personally found uh really almost inexplicable i couldn't really understand why she committed suicide uh, even it, it just seemed like a really weird finale to that subplot. And then with Olivia completely just kind of giving up on, on him and, and thinking that she just can't figure this person out and that it's just a waste of her time and leaving guys would love to hear your thoughts on how these two women's subplots kind of wrap up. Cause I think that they are ultimately sort of running in parallel with each other at some point. 
I mean, just to speak to Sarah's, I, I mean, I, I guess I understand to some extent why she does it because like she's been driven to her wits end by this guy. You know, there's the whole, there's the scene at dinner where, where, where he brings Olivia or whatever. And I think that's kind of the final straw. She probably begins to suspect that something is going on there between the two of them. And so, but, but I mean, my issue is just that it just feels like a lazy way, right. To get rid of the character. Yeah. Uh, like, well, she's at her wits end, you know, he's, He's treated her badly, so she's gone. She's committed suicide. Like I, I don't know. I just, I, I Nolan is better than that. I think in terms of, uh, you know, writing a more satisfying arc for this character, I, I really do. In the end, just feel like it was a way to get rid of this character. Mm. Jay, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's uh, Sarah's death is probably one of the two things I have the hardest time reconciling uh, in this movie. Yeah, just because you know it it really does to me feel like it's manufactured to give, you know, the one half of Borden that, uh, you know, makes it through the end, you know, his own like loss. Like he can't, you know, walk out of this with his wife and kid and all that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I might find it a little bit more understandable. I mean, to me, you know, it's, you've been living this giant lie, right? Like you've, you've been fooled by this person that you love and had a child with. Um, I mean, I, you know, We'll hopefully never have to find out what that feels like right so i don't know i i mean to me like you know I, I chalked it up to like heartbreak almost embarrassment even they also do kind of throw around the fact that you know like you know as their marriage like progresses like there's like one throwaway line about how she's like you know drinking a lot lately um and I, i'm not necessarily that ties into this or whatever but it's just the kind of thing that you know i, I think they were trying to show that she was unraveling a little bit or at least, you know, suffering at the hands of this like trick. Um, but ultimately like, you know, I'll agree that, you know, it does just kind of seem like, okay, like, you know, we just need to get rid of her now. So we do. Yeah. It doesn't work for me. That's the one thing in the film. I think that if I had to point to that, just doesn't work at all. It's, it's the conclusion to Sarah's Sarah's arc. I, I get kind of the de evolution or, you know, sinking into driving towards your wits end, whatever you want to call it, right. That, that she's experiencing. And I, I take your point there, Jay, around the kind of alcoholism element of it as well, maybe, but again, like just suicide by hanging yourself in his workshop. is just like really weird to me. I, I didn't really get it at all. Um, and I think that Olivia's character is maybe a more reasonable conclusion to a similar arc in terms of, you know, raise your hands, I can't figure this out. I get, you know, I'm giving up on you and walking away. And obviously that's much more difficult to do when you have a child with someone and you're married, et cetera. I totally get that. But it just felt like a weird, it, it's weird to think about these two arcs in parallel about how, you know, when you look back at the end of the film, each one of them loved one of these people and their frustration with under trying to understand why it is that they don't feel the same thing in return a hundred percent of the time is something that ultimately leads both of them to end their relationship but in different ways. And it's those different ways that just doesn't, it, I can't figure it out, I guess. I mean, that, that, that's fair. But when we, and again, I'm not saying this, like I, I certainly am not justifying the choice to like have Sarah commit suicide, but also like, I mean, the way the women are written in this movie, like the, I guess the better quote unquote alternative is to, you know, go to his rival and spoil the trick or trick him into moving to Colorado for a few years. Like, you know, there was, and, and you know, maybe, maybe this is just uh, a small knock on Nolan, but like, you know, they're, it doesn't seem like anyone, either of them, you know, really deals with uh, 
at least one of the betrayals or stumpers for lack of a better word uh, that they, you know, go through well, they don't deal with it well, with the exception of, I guess, Scarlett Johansson at the end when she finally, you know, just decides, all right, you know what, like, forget this, I'm out. I don't know if I have anything else to add on that point, Scott, anything else you want to throw in there? Let's get to the ending. <laughs> uh, well, sorry. Okay. Do you guys want to talk about the science bit at all? We've kind of completely avoided it. Um, no. No, it's not Getting, really important. Universal. No. <laughs> yeah. I can wrap it into what I want to say about the ending. Time. Sure. Same. Let's talk about. Let's talk about the ending. I mean, uh, we don't have to say spoilers now because we have already referenced it. But Scott, I'll let you go ahead and talk first here about your thoughts and wrapping in the science element of it. I mean, yeah. So, so obviously, we have like the double reveal that I that I talked about. Or that you know that I alluded to, which is number one, we learn that uh, that Borden has been doing the trick because there are two Bordens, right? He has a twin, um, yeah. and the other Michael Kane was right the entire time that he was just using a body double. Yeah, which is kind of one of the problems that I have. But um, okay, and, we'll talk about that. But also, Hugh Jackman, uh, he has been doing the trick because he gets the machine from Tesla, right? He clones himself, and then the the other you know, the version of himself on stage drops down, drowns in the tank. And so then, you know, we get the scene of Michael Caine finding all the dead bodies underneath the stage, which is kind of dramatic. But um, anyway, so so that's sort of the double reveal. And I mean, I think you guys can tell what my main issue is, um, which is that. And I mean, I fundamentally, like fundamentally, I believe about plot twists. And like we've said, I think that this movie is kind of a interrogation of plot twists. Like you could substitute magic tricks in this movie for plot twists uh if if you want to the role that magic tricks plays and everything that they say about magic tricks in the movie i think also equally applies to like plot twists and movies and stuff like that but i mean my fundamental belief has always been that the good plot twists are the ones that when you go back and watch it you could say it was it was all there the whole time it was all in front of you you could put it all together based on what 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 you know you see in this movie and the director just just fooled me because he was, you know, distracting me, whatever. I mean, I think the, the perfect example, right, is The Sixth Sense, one of the most famous plot twists of all time, one of the best plot twists of all time. We see Malcolm Crowe get shot in the first scene of the movie. And at the end, because of how, you know, because of M. Night Shyamalan's craft in writing the script and directing the movie at the end, when the reveal comes that he was dead the whole time, we're like, Wow, I was, I'm stunned. I didn't see that coming. Even though we see in the first scene, he gets killed, right? He gets killed. It's all there the whole time. And so you go back and watch it and you're like, well, yeah, maybe I'm actually kind of dumb, but not really. It's because, you know, again, of the skill of the director and the writer in diverting your attention and making it, uh, you know, in whatever they do, make, fooling you, uh, even though the answers are right there in front of you. The answers are not right there in front of you and the prestige. I, I mean, I personally don't think they are for in terms of this final reveal. And I, I, you know, think that Nolan deliberately hides them in the case of the reveal that Borden has a twin. I mean, and I mean, the, what I'm basically referring to is the way that Fallon is portrayed in the movie, right? Like the way that we see him in the movie, there are almost no close-up shots of him whatsoever. And when we do get a close-up shot of him, it is, I mean, I guess it's Christian Bale, but it's a heavily made up Christian Bale wearing fake facial hair. I mean, there's no way that you can tell it's the same person. And so he is going out of his way. Like he is calling attention to the deliberate ways in which he is trying to trick the audience. And like, to me, that's not what a plot twist is. And that's not what a magic trick is, right? When you know the ending of a magic trick, when you know how a magic trick is done, 
you should basically be able to go back and watch the magic trick and say, oh, I see how he did it now, now that I know the ending. And like, I don't think you can really do that with the with with this movie and with the reveal that that Borden is, in fact, uh, you know, two people. And, and I mean, at the same time, at the same time that I think it's impossible to figure out, I also think it's almost too easy to figure out, right? Not because of anything that's in the movie, but just because when you see how the trick is done for the first time, right, your mind naturally goes to, well, what if you had a twin? And like the whole, there's the whole aspect in the movie, like you're talking about, Scott, that um, Cutter. that they're saying, yeah. yeah, that he's saying, well, and, 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 you know, Angier is swearing that, no, it wasn't a body double. The trick has to be, you know, something more interesting than him using a body double. And okay, maybe he doesn't use a body double in the same way that Angier yeah. does eventually but he does right because he's using a twin so he's basically doing the trick the same way that angier eventually does it so yeah. i just don't find that satisfying you know like i said it's it's too easy to figure out in the sense that not again not because of anything in the movie but just because when you see how the trick is done yeah. like well if you had a twin that would make sense. i mean it's just not like you're, you're not fooled you're not really surprised by that ending no, and I mean, you, the- you are you are fooled scott you are you are fooled by the trick because you you bought in you you were fooled the entire movie you are, yeah, you are fooled because, you know, you can't figure it out. Again, like, I, like I'm saying, I don't yeah, think that. I, I, I disagree with that. You can't figure it out based on the evidence. You can't figure it out based on the evidence in the film, in my opinion. But I, I, I think other- I, I disagree with that to some extent. I think Jay is going to be on the opposite end of the spectrum, and I'm going to end up somewhere in the middle. But, Jay, I'll let you go ahead and say your piece because you'll be about to die. I told you the whole time, Scott Harvey. That's the whole – oh, my God. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. No, and and – and this is where I digress a little bit, right? And then I say, okay, fine. Like I, I can understand that like on a first viewing, it, it's probably not something that you can decipher in that you're right. You know, you don't really get close up shots of Fallon and it all, you know, is maybe a little too easy when you're like, Oh, what if he had a twin? But he not only like tells you so many times throughout the movie that this is what he's doing. Like Michael Caine's cutter even tells you, you know, like you're you're watching this movie wanting it to be something more, and it's something literally as simple as there's just another person walking out that other door. Um, and you know, I I brought receipts, you know, at six minutes and eighteen seconds, you know, Alfred Borden literally refers to Fallon as himself, and then you know, there's that scene where the little boy cries when uh, the magician that Borden is helping as an assistant kills the bird with the little disappearing bird trick and goes, but where's his brother? And again, you know, just going back to Michael Caine, like constantly telling you, you know, he's using a double. There's nothing that weird going on. And I think there's literally only one line in the movie that actually like drives me up a wall. And it's when Rebecca Hall, Sarah has figured out what's going on. And she says to Borden, you know, I know what you really are. And to me, you know, that, that's something you say to someone when you figure out they're a vampire and that's how they've been doing this trick, not, you know, a twin. But like leaving that one bit aside, you know, to me, like it really just is in front of you the whole time. It's not meant to be something super mesmerizing. It's meant to just be, hey, we used a double. We showed it to you with the little bird trick. We, you know, Michael Caine like told you consistently throughout the movie. And again, to me, you know, like part of what the enjoyment comes from, you know, is being able to tell that there are just two different people taking part in this illusion. You know, like I don't, I don't buy into the, you know, it doesn't matter which one it is. Um, you know, I, I feel like I can tell and, and that, that's why I enjoy it. And, you know, I guess I'll agree that, you know, like maybe, you know, you're not supposed to see it coming, but again, like if, I think if you just rewatch it with like the attitude of it's just in front of you the entire time, you know, yeah. like that is really why I enjoy it. 
yeah. I find it satisfying, I'll say. Yeah, I, I think I, I think I end up somewhere in the middle here. I think that obviously I, I don't I haven't yet had the experience where I feel like I can watch the film and know which twin I'm looking at in the film. At the same time, to say that this film doesn't at all. You're not able to piece together earlier on in the film that there are there there could be another Borden. I, I, I don't think that I I agree with that. I think that you can. I think that both of what what Jay's saying here with with Cutter talking about it what even you know the him he the guy is saying or sorry borden is saying himself about fallon uh what scarlett johansson's and rebecca hall's characters both say forgetting the you know cringy line that I, I agree with you jay that that's not the best line uh in in the movie but the talking about how oh today you don't love me or oh like you seem like you're you're acting different today with whatever the line was that scarlett johansson talks about i think there are signs throughout the film that How there are, are your fingers bleeding like they did on day one again? You know, like that that part of it too. Sorry. Yeah. I, I, so I, I think that there are hints throughout the film for you to, to pick up on these things. And I think part of the th thing that the part that makes it most interesting for me, I think, is that it is that simple. Like the trick that is in front of you is that simple. And the reason why you didn't believe it the entire time is because you're like, it has to be more complicated than that. It has to be more interesting. You're just like Andrew. There has to be something more to this trick than him just using then there being another person who looks like Borden who's walking out that other door. And I think that that's the part of the film and the finale that works so well with me. And, and that, you know, since it's been the week or so that since I've watched this film that has really stuck with me. And I think it's super interesting is that Christopher Nolan is making this commentary on these tricks that people play on you. These, whether it's a magic trick, whether it's a plot twist that you're so obsessed with figuring them out. You're obsessed with figuring out the magic. trick. You're obsessed with figuring out the plot twist that actually, even though I am this like magician of films and plot twists that, you know, take memento or, or whatever other film you want, you want to think about Nolan's monography, really, all I need to do to really trick you is do something that's super obvious. And you won't you won't be able to pick up on it until I tell you at the end how obvious the trick was. And I think that that is Nolan kind of wagging his finger at people and, and making and making and sort of this like a meta joke on plot twists. And I think that it works really well and everything that he's doing is intentional here. And I'll be interested to see how I feel about it on a second on a, on a rewatch when I do have, uh, you know, the finale already in mind when I start the movie and see if my opinion on some of these things changes. But like right now, I think that the plot twist works that there are hints throughout the film uh, to, to point you in the right direction. And that the, I think it feels like the real frustration coming from you, Scott, is that, that, it's not really a plot twist because it's so simple. And I think that that's part of the joke. Well, and, and it's just that I feel like Nolan's tactics are, he doesn't want you to be able to figure it out. Like he deliberately wants to trick you. And I, I just don't see that as like being again, because, because he just like, first of all, I think he's, we're, we're a little bit skewed in the telling of the story. I think we get more of it from Angier's perspective. So we're looking at it more um, from, from his point of view and sure, that, ma that makes it, that makes it harder to see. I think, you know, whether there's two Bordens or not. Yes. I'll give you that. There are some, you know, lines. If you go back and watch it, knowing the twist, they're like, Oh yeah, there's, there's a little allusion to it whatsoever. It, it, you know, but also the, the whole, I just, I would just go back to the whole Fallon thing. Like the way that he, you know, make so heavily makes him up. He barely he avoids any close-ups. Uh, of the character like it just feels like he wants you to be wowed by the reveal in the end that yeah but, but no but no director is going to do but no director is going to give you a close-up and not heavily make up the person when the trick of the movie is that the it's the same like it's a, it's a twin like I, like I just don't know I, just, I guess 
But I just don't think you need Allen in there at all. Like, I I think he could just be behind the scenes the whole time, right? Like, I, yes, okay, there could could be a twin in the end, but I think by showing us this character on screen, but not really showing him to us, it's like, oh, look, it was right there in front of you the whole time and you didn't see it. Well, the reason we didn't see it is because you didn't freaking show him to us. And that's the the frustrating part. You sound mad that you got fooled. I'll go ahead and say it. (laughs) So here's the thing. I wasn't, I wasn't fooled because that's, that was my whole other point is that I think it is. A little too easy and yeah i understand some of your points about maybe that is the point of the movie but i just don't find that satisfying in the end and okay go ahead because i have another point i want to make but yeah it looks like look like i so i guess i'm confused because it sounds like you're saying that you knew the plot twist before it happened which i i don't get i don't uh, correct me if i'm wrong there no i mean i think i probably had the sensation that you're saying that christopher nolan wanted me to have in the end which was really that was it like like I could yeah. have guessed that a long time ago, right? Like, because that's what not, he says that magic is like. Well, as not, soon as you again, know the secret, it, it it's not it's again, not cool it's anymore. It's not based on the evidence necessarily in the movie that you could have figured it out. I think it's more just based on common sense. I mean, maybe that's. Well, fair, I disagree with that. Scott, I, well, I I yeah, don't watch understand. a magic show now because I I promise you, if you go to any magic show, the magician's also not performing a trick with the idea of oh, are you going to figure it out? Like they're definitely trying to leave you with the sense of yeah. how did he do that? You know, not oh, you could have figured it out if you would. Yeah, watch no, my I don't. I don't fingers closely or whatever. I don't disagree with that. I'm not saying that if you watch a magic trick for the first time, you should be able to figure it out on the first time. I'm saying when you know what happened, when you know the explanation of the trick, when you know the plot twist at the end of the movie, you should be able to go back and watch it all and put it all together. When you know what the how a magic trick is done, you should be able to watch the trick back and say, "I get it. Okay, now that I understand the ending, I get it. That it's all there in front of me, but the magician is making me look elsewhere." But I think we're belaboring this point. The other point I do want to make regarding the science element, and this is this is less of a problem for me, but I do, and because I do understand that like, there's some historical basis for the fact that you know magic and science were kind of intertwining at the time, but it is kind of a letdown again for me. For for Angier's, you know, the reveal of Angier, how he did the trick is something that isn't like possible really. With I mean, there's this machine, right? Yes, that Tesla creates, but it's not like some it's it's not really a magic trick at that point anymore it's more just science he just gets into a machine and it clones him it's not really anything that he's doing it's more just this machine that tesla has created so the fact that it kind of goes down this science fiction yeah. alley at the end i feel like is is just a tad disappointing because i think a lot of what the movie is about and a lot of the conversation we just had was you know the these tricks they're all they're all possible right there there are explanations for all of them like that are that are common sense explanations. Like Borden used a twin. That's how he did the trick. And so for for the ultimate reveal to be that Angier is cloning himself, it's like, well, like that's no fun because like I can't go out and clone myself and and do the trick. I don't know. I, I mean that again. That's it's a less of a disappointment to me. But I think the fact that so much of the the movie is you know based on the fact that there are practical explanations for these tricks, and then there isn't really for for Angier's you know, the, the way that he is able to perform the transporting man is a tad disappointing. To me. Yeah. I, I mean, that's why it's not the ultimate reveal, right? I don't even think it's meant to be a reveal. Like, you know, that he's creating clones as soon as you see the machine. The happening. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yes. exactly. So yeah, but I, yeah. He, I guess, I guess I just disagree that the movie even goes in that direction at all slightly at the end is what I'm saying. Not maybe not necessarily that it's treated as a twist or a reveal or anything, mm-hmm. but just that the movie go, you know, does take a bit of a science fiction twist. Yeah. 
Not everyone's going to have a problem with it. Again, there's historical basis for it, but because of because of the rest yeah. of the movie, because of what magic fundamentally is, right? Well, it, it's it's not necessarily something that relies on like you know science that people can't access. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's fair. Why it's I, it, it, it takes it to an extreme, but I think that you're right in saying that there's a historical basis in this idea of science, like the the like the unknown, like scientific unknowns, is magic, right? Like the the whole yeah. idea that something that someone doesn't understand isn't 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 real so like if you don't understand science then it must be magic and and, and i think that i i agree that it's maybe kind of spun up a, a little bit off the cuff to drive the plot along maybe but uh, it, it worked fine for me and I, but i understand how it might be a, a, a hesitation in another respect jay anything else you want to add or are we ready to go no i i think that's a fair gripe to have with the movie and to me you know it really the the cloning machine really just is a plot device to kind of get you to the end and kind of get, you know, right. No, I, no, no, no. I think it's more than that. Cause I, I think that there's a lot. So I think it adds to the, to the element of this, this, like the socioeconomic class differences, this idea that, you know, ultimately when you, when you understand what Borden is doing, that's like getting your hands dirty and getting down in the dirt. Whereas like what Angier is doing is he, he's cheating, right? Like he's taking the aristocratic way out and cheating and doing the trick this this different way where he's cloning himself things like that. Well, I, I think it has, is more than just a MacGuffin. well uh, yeah i i wouldn't i wouldn't agree with scott harvey on that point but and like that's that's why i really like borden's speech at the end where he's basically giving angier no props for having uh you know created the cloning device or rather you know funded the creation of the cloning device right like he's very much you know like no props no you know like yeah. it's just you know like i mean you didn't do anything I think it's too far to say it's a MacGuffin. I, I would I wouldn't say it's a MacGuffin, but I think it is kind of like him saying, "Okay, look, we have to end up in this place where he can also do the trick, right? But not in the same way that Borden does the trick. So yep. let's just invent this machine that doesn't actually exist, right? That that did, did probably didn't exist at the time. You couldn't clone people back then, and that's how he ultimately does the trick. And okay, yeah, he was rich, and so that's how he could do it. It just feels very convenient right that there's this machine that ultimately allows him to perform the trick exactly as it's meant to be performed. yeah that, 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 that's yeah. what i'll call it a plot device right? but it, but it's also part of them i i just think that it it's so much more than just a plot device because it does speak to the themes of the movie and also this idea of like succumbing to this mo this moral compass that he'd had with cutter because that's ultimately why cutter abandons him and, and says and kind of shrugs his shoulder at the end when he watches you know the other board and walk through walk through the theater door knowing that he's going to kill him like i think that uh, again i think it's it's serving more than just as a plot device i understand that that the, it's like prime visual function is, is getting them to a place where they both can do the trick in different ways but it, it feels like it also speaks to the overarching uh developments of 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 angier but also where you ultimately end up with the relationship between angier and borden and cutter as well so i think that there is a little bit more going on there Perhaps. I mean, where, where it kind of craps out for me actually is not, uh, you know, in the reveal that it's the cloning device. It really, it, it's, his, it's Angier's final scene. And this is uh, what I mentioned at the beginning when I was talking about how I didn't, I thought it was one scene that Jackman uh, kind of let me, and I guess it wasn't his acting so much as maybe the, the character kind of let me down is his final words about, you know, oh, like, you know, we did this, you know, to see the look on the faces of the audience. Right. And I don't know. I mean, I mean, maybe that's supposed to be, you know, I guess he just doesn't even see how like, twist that he's become and, and you know the fact that he's chasing this obsession but that's so not why we're at this point right like you didn't you know create this cloning device and try to get Borden hanged hung so that you know you could 
you know, he didn't create the device at all. I mean, or, sorry, fund the creation of the device, uh, you know, for that sake. Right. And I mean, yeah. that to me is like really the only part of Angier's character that I actually really, you know, was kind of, and, and the reason I guess it lasts is because, you know, it's his final moments. Right. Is, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess to me, like, you know, if he, if, if there had almost been some sort of recognition in like what he had done, you know, and again, like funding the cloning device, killing versions of himself, you know, like, you know, that, that might've been something, but him kind of, you know, just being like, Oh, you never really got why we did this, huh? Like just kind of, I don't know. I, I, I think I know what it was supposed to do. And I just don't think it like worked that well for me. I don't know if you guys had any, any thoughts on that. That line didn't stick with me. So I don't know if I have any thoughts on it. I guess I get what it's going for. Right. That like, you know, the problem with the first version of the trick is that he can't see the audience. And so now with this cloning, cloning, uh, you know, machine or whatever, he can actually see the audience's reaction, which obviously is something that means a lot to him. But I do agree with you, Jay, that there's more to it, I think, than just wanting to see the audience's reaction. Yeah, I don't think either of us believe that it's that the sole reason for doing this isn't to feel success in the form of one up in yeah. the other. So. That's that. All right, guys. Our longest discussion on the countdown series so far, and deservedly so. I think. I think there's there there was always going to be a lot to talk about. I think. But what is your favorite scene from the Prestige, Scott? Yeah, I mean, I think it is the first time that that um, that Angier does the transporting man trick with the ball, right? We're with the with the double. Um, I mean, I, I think that that um, whole you know execution of the trick is really fun to watch and. Um, and seeing his reaction, you know, to the audience underneath the stage is um, is really fun. And I mean, that's I keep using the word fun, and maybe that's ultimately where my problem is in the end is just that this is supposed to be a fun movie, right? Like this is not like Memento, where they he wants to leave you with really like bleak thoughts about humanity and stuff. I think this is just you know a puzzle box movie that you're you're not really walking away with this with any like you know existential ideas about humanity it's more just about you know watching some magic tricks and stuff like that and just you know the the reveal is isn't fun to me it's just not satisfying so that again that's that's kind of a a sidebar but i do really like the scene with angier under the stage and i really like a lot of this movie i want to emphasize that again i do really like this movie it's a very mesmerizing movie to watch i wouldn't mind re-watching it i just have some quibbles about the prestige because so much of the movie does hinge on jay what about you uh, it is the scene that I mentioned earlier. It's actually the last time uh, that Angier performs the uh, transported man with the body double um, and Borden, you know, kind of intercepts the trick, you know, makes a complete fool out of him. And again, you know, like you know, my reaction, I think was that of like Fallon's and the audience when he's watching is, you know, I'm kind of laughing. I'm like, Oh, this is such a bad idea. Um, you know, and like, you know, this is just going to escalate things further, but also like, you know, bail, as you know, the, the arrogant professor basically, you know, just proclaiming his win and, you know, uh, yeah, I guess like advertising for his show across the street. Like, I don't know why I found that so funny. Like I, I, I laughed out loud. It was great. Yeah, that, that is, that is a great scene. I think, um, if, if I was to choose something different besides that, I think another good one is kind of the, the, I guess juxtaposed moments. Cause I think that they happen roughly the same time. We, we kind of skimmed over this, but again, these movie that, you know, this movie's being told in different timelines uh, and being interwoven together. So you get different moments juxtaposed to each other, even though they're very different times chronologically. I think one of those times that I think was really funny and I appreciate a lot was the two moments where they are 
you know, I think uh, Angier is reading the diary and gets to the point where he realizes that he's been tricked. And at the same time in the prison, Bale is reading uh, some note or what I can't remember exactly what it was and realizing that he had been he'd been fooled as well. And that uh, it was all that's, a gimmick. That's a good one. Yeah, that's, that's a really good moment as well. I don't know if I agree with, with you, Scott, that this is a, this is a fun movie. Like this is meant to just be a fun puzzle box, figure it out film, because I think it's pretty it's a, a pretty bleak outlook on these two men's lives. And you're kind of grossly obsessed with where they end up with each other i guess i didn't i didn't leave thinking that it was meant to be a fun movie but i if if you left thinking that it was meant to be a fun movie then you certainly would have been disappointed probably as as much fun as christopher nolan can have right like he's not going to be out here telling yuck yucks i think but um you know it's a it's a movie about magic we have cloning people in it i mean we're not meant to take this whole thing really that seriously i don't think at least i hope not I mean, I thought plenty about obsession and what yeah. the drive for success takes and all that. I mean, but, I mean, you know, any, any, maybe I, I, I overthought I, this movie. I do agree with Jay. Yeah, I think David I, uh, Bowie playing Nikola Tesla, <laughs> creating a cloning machine. Sure, but I think that any theme where it's, I think it's pretty inarguable that like the central theme of this film is obsession and how far will you go to one up someone else? Yes, there are fun moments for sure, but I think that the. That that ultimately is going to end in a disaster. That, and with a Nolan film, it's never going to be a good a good kind of disaster. But I mean, it's just the context of the movie, I guess. For me, yes, it's about obsession, but in Victorian between Victorian era magicians, right? Like that's not something that's really that relatable to any of us. Sure. Yeah. I mean, fair enough. Um, yeah. So, guys, let's put a score on it. Scott, what are you giving the prestige? Uh, Seven point nine. This is a, a really really fun movie. I understand why people like it. Um, yeah. I just wish that they landed the plane. Yep. Jay, what are you going to give it? 10. 10 out oh, of 10. Finally Scott, got to a 10 with Jay. Crazy. No, Scott, Scott, <laughs> Scott is entitled to his opinion, just like you've been entitled to your crazy scores in the past, Jay. So I wouldn't, wouldn't sweat it too much. 10 out of 10 standing firmly by it. You'll, you'll never, well, if it's see, any, never if it's any consolation, it's I think so we're all going to agree about the next movies. <laughs> That's fair. I think we're all just going to have a fun old time talking about how great the next movie is. That's also fair. Yeah. And I'm giving it a 9.2. I think this is a really great film. I'll be interested to see how it ages with time. Uh, I think that if I have the experience that I think that I have that, I mean, even that I've had talking about this film in this conversation, I think there's a chance that score uh, goes up maybe a little bit, but if not, it certainly will hold. I think that there are still some, some real critiques to be had of this film and the way it treats some of its female characters. Uh, especially and so i think that's the one thing holding it back for me guys all right if we could run through we've watched five movies so far we watched following we've watched memento we've watched insomnia we've watched batman begins and we've watched the prestige how do you rank them well scott we'll start with you number five following number four the prestige number three insomnia number two batman begins number one way up here (laughs) memento jay where are you at uh, number five, following. Number four, Insomnia. Number three, Memento. Number two, Batman Begins. And number one, The Prestige. Yeah, I, I sense a, a recurring theme about the quality of of following that that we have in our <laughs> in our list. But uh, and maybe it, maybe it lends some credence to that that uh, first you know first time director uh, joke that Scott and I recurringly make on, on our podcast when. Uh, joking about people saying that oh you could tell they were a first time director uh but yeah for me number five is going to be following i'm also in with jay here calling number four insomnia scott did you also say insomnia was number four number three i had number three four uh procedure four that's right yeah uh number three batman begins number two memento number one 
the prestige so far. <laughs> Goodbye. Oh. <laughs> oh, I'm happy. Tough one for Scott. Uh, it, it is interesting to see the of the five movies that we've tough one before, for cinema. Tough one for cinema. In my tough, I don't know what you're talking about, Scott. <laughs> Memento literally wasn't wasn't meant for the cinema, and the prestige was. So there you have it, guys. I think that it, it's an interesting first half. I wonder if any of these will be in the top three. Uh, when we get to the end, I have a feeling I know the answer to that for the two of you. But I'm genuinely curious uh, whether the where these films will end up for me because a couple of my favorite movies of all time are in the next five movies uh, we watch. So it'll be interesting to see where things shake out ultimately. But guys, I think that will just about do it for part five of the Nolan Countdown. Please follow our podcast on Twitter at, at Media Plug Pods. Subscribe to our newsletter. Use the link in the episode notes for that. Don't forget to check out our podcast Patreon page as well at www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. And our Patreon has a bunch of different reward tiers to check out. You can receive various uh, different rewards depending on how much you're willing to donate to the podcast. And we'd appreciate it again if you did even contribute only at the $1 level. That's www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Check it out for yourself and pick the tier that's right for you. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, however, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts, where we'd appreciate if you rate and reviewed, as well as subscribed and shared, so that we can continue to reach a broader audience. And with that, we really appreciate all of you for listening to part five of our Nolan Countdown miniseries. Don't for forget to check out all the other podcasts in the Some Like It Scott feed, including our latest episode of Some Like It Scott, as well as Champ's Lunch. And we'll be back next week with part six of the Nolan Countdown, when the three of us will be revisiting the second entry in Nolan's Batman trilogy, The Dark Knight. Until then, for Scott Harvey and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.